time to strap our boots on This is a perfect day to die Wipe the blood out of our eyes In this life there's no surrender And there's nothing left for us to do Find the strength to see this through Yeah. Hey, everybody, it's Daphne here at Laura Entertainment. We are sitting down with Sheila Traster. Hey, how are you going? (laughs) I'm terrific, (laughs) especially now that I'm here. Thank you so much for asking me to do this. Woman veteran, respect. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about your time in the service. How was that? I mean, how did that all come to be? It's actually kind of a unique situation, my my whole career. It wasn't that long, but, you know, as I mentioned to you, I do think my greatest service to my country was as a dependent. You know, I was born into a military family. Uh, my father was enlisted for six years at the time, went through OCS, Officers Candidate School, became an officer, and we moved every two and a half, three years of my life. We were um, stationed all over the U.S., lived abroad, and I'm not sure a lot of people can appreciate uh, what that's like, you know, growing up and doing that. And you have a very different sort of perspective of the world uh, and family and community and friends. And back then you didn't have Facebook and yeah. all these ways of staying in touch. So you're a pen pal with people for a while and that drops off, you know, eventually. So it's it's a very interesting childhood. And I spent the last five years of uh, middle school and high school overseas. We were at, we were in Japan the whole time, but I lived in three different houses, two different military bases. And so when I graduated, my dad actually extended so that I could graduate uh, at the same school. I, I didn't know much about what it was like to be in this country, what the colleges were like or anything else. Yeah. And so when we came back to the States, I took a gap year. I was working as an aircraft dispatcher. I'd always wanted to fly. And my older brother, who was in the Army, had gotten out of the Army. And I was driving him around for job interviews. And we went to the Air Force recruiter's office. Well, they spent a lot of time talking to me. So he (laughs) ended up going from the Army. He went into the Air Force. And then I, um, I ended up enlisting and I thought it would be a great way at the time I could get the old GI Bill. I was one of the last people on the books enlisted December 31st, 1976. My dad swore me in. It was very, very cool. That would be cool. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It was very, very cool. And, um, that that's kind of how that all came about. I had visions of flying and being an astronaut and 
always loved being in outer space. The idea of that <laughs> or Jacques Cousteau in the ocean, you know. <laughs> so space. that's pretty dangerous. I think I'd rather take my chances with the water. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So once I enlisted, um, you know, I went, I was delayed enlistment. I didn't go active, active duty until April the following year. Um, went to tech school, San Antonio, Texas, was a dorm chief at Lackland. Um, and they give you a bunch of tests to see what you're capable of doing. Yeah. And I had um, scored pretty high in a lot of the more math STEM kind of stuff. And um, I had options for going overseas. And my dream sheet was Spain, Italy, France, but we didn't have a base at that time in France, I don't think. And I got Morse code operator in Spain. And I turned it down because they said, basically I'm in a room 12 hours a day in a dark room listening to da, 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 and I thought I'd go crazy. <laughs> and the so ASVAB, I, so you had a good ASVAB, um, ASVAB, the test score. Yeah, yeah, really high. And um, and so I took an assignment to San Vito, Italy, and I, as a disbursement accounting specialist, and so I went to Wichita Falls for tech school. I was a rope there. And then three of us got pulled out of class one day, two of my male classmates and myself. And the Air Force Academy would send people around to the different tech schools. And they wanted to sort of surround the cadets with airmen, servicemen, women, who, you know, represented uh, something that they were looking for and I was one of three and I ended up winning that nomination I was an undergrad at tech school um, had you know the leadership experience dorm chief at Lackland a rope at tech school and I graduated with the highest honors at that time to go through the school so I was stationed at the Air Force Academy and in the back of my mind they said well if you take this assignment you have to give up Italy and I'd never been to Europe and always wanted to go. In the back of my mind, I thought, well, if I go there, maybe I'll become a cadet. Yeah. So I went there and was working in accounting and finance. And my commanding officer looked through my records, saw you know my accomplishments, and um, set up a bunch of meetings for me. And I got a presidential appointment to the Air Force Academy. But I had been out of high school now for almost three years. And it's a very stringent, you know, academic program. So I went to the prep school mid-year, graduated from the prep school. And then my freshman year at the Air Force Academy was the last year they had all men in the senior class. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so did you get to fly? I mean, I know that. I think you said you didn't actually get to fly a plane, but did you get to get inside of the Oh, jet? no, actually I did. I flew before I went into the Air Force. I worked as an aircraft, aircraft dispatcher at Hanscom Air Force Base, where my dad was stationed in, in Lexington, Massachusetts, wow. after we came back from Japan. And I started taking flying lessons. So I had 50 hours, single engine time, been up solo. Um, yeah quite a bit. 
I have some harrowing stories of <laughs> things I did, like checked myself out in an airplane when the wind factor was higher than my 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 level of competency yeah. and getting lost in the sky, things like that. <laughs> I was a bit of a daredevil. So uh, I was one of, I believe, if I remember correctly, I was one of nine uh, women, freshman women who qualified um, and, and had uh, um, pilot qualification. So we had gone up in gliders, T-37s, uh, Huey Cobra helicopters and stuff. Wow. Um, I didn't fly solo there. I mean, these were all you know, flights that we were with, you know, somebody else, but it was interesting, you know, to be in a T-37. Probably my favorite is being in a glider. There's, it's probably the closest thing to what it's like to be a bird. <laughs> you're in the plane, there's no engine. Once you're released from the tow plane that pulls you up, you're in the air gliding and yeah. it's, just stunning it's breathless it's just wow. you in the plane gliding through the air it's beautiful see i think tom cruise needs to give you a movie and or give you a you a role in the next movie the next top gun movie i don't know if i could handle those barrel rolls it would be a lot of throwing up like the rest of his the people he cast but that would be exciting yeah be exciting. just don't drink <laughs> yeah I don't anyway so I got an advantage there but yeah that would be fun though I think about that sometimes I know that they say that the g's you know suck you back but I still I think it would be fun as hell I really it, when you take flying lessons one of the things they do is you have to know how to handle the aircraft if your engine dies so yeah. I flew, um, I I flew single engine. I've been in um, twin engines, and I actually flew a seaplane once, and landed on Lake Winnipesaukee. That was a hard bounce. <laughs> but uh, one of the things that they do is they cut your engine and they put you into a spin, and you have to know how to get out of that spin. Wow. As you're, you know, you have your ratio of air, gas mixture, how it all moves through your engine and stuff. And when you lose your engine and you start to fall and you pick up speed, that's when you can go into a spin and you need to know how to get yourself out of that. So I've, I've done that. I've had to do that in planes. Wow. That would kind of freak me out. You know, just cruising along and then all of a sudden, oh, sorry, lost the engine. Here we go. Bye. <laughs> I think, you know, because a lot of people in that situation, even though that they know it's coming because that's why they're up there anyway, I still see people freaking out, you know, when when it happens. Yeah. Well, the tendency is, is if you start to go in a dive, you want to pull up. And then you go into a stall, you know, because what you want to do is to be able to find that balance between your speed and being able to stay level as you coast in. Then you're like a glider. And glider yeah. has really long wings because it doesn't have an engine to propel you. So when you're in an aircraft with an engine and you stall, 
the weight of that, and if your nose is really high, you're going to fall over backwards and go into a spin. So the idea is that if that happens, you can't freak out and be pulling up on the nose, and then you your ratio of you don't have any air moving yeah. through under your wings. They have what they call the. I'm probably getting too technical. It's all coming back. To oh me, no, but, you're fine. I'm with you. <laughs> yeah, you have this. The wings are designed so the bottom is flat and there's a little curve on the top so that when the airflow goes over the wing, it creates what they call a laminar flow of air. So when you have the curved top, it's just like race cars, right? Yeah. They're all designed and then on the back, they have the tails and that's where the force is and it keeps you up. So you get this laminar flow of air over the wings and it allows the plane to stay airborne. So you need to keep your speed and your angle right so you keep that air moving over the wings until you can find a place to land that's safe and keep you moving forward as you descend. Wow. Did they, they didn't give you a heads up either, huh? When they did it, when they cut the engine on you? Well, when you're training, they do. I mean, you study on the ground for what's, you know, what's going to happen in the air. You have to understand the the physics of the whole thing, you know, the, yeah. sort of the biodynamics or whatever you call it. I might not be using the right words now, but there's <laughs> certain things you have to understand, like about the airflow and the speed ratio to your angle, things like that. And it's funny because... Because of that experience is why I think I got cast in one of the roles that I've played as military in film. Yeah. Yeah. And that whole audition experience is, you know, one of my favorites. But um, yeah, that ex my my experience doing that and being in the Air Force had a big part to do with it. I'm surprised. I mean, seeing you, you should be in more military movies I think you know because you have the experience so why not put in a real female soldier instead well, of you know but I'll tell you it's interesting in the film that I was in Brothers with Jake Gyllenhaal Tommy, Toby Maguire Natalie Portman it's a remake of a, I think a Swedish film that was really uh, wonderful but when I went in for the audition, uh, the casting directors were terrific. They had cast me in a lot of other projects. And when I came in, they said, thanks for flying out. We really appreciate it. This is a very small film cast wise, and there really isn't anything for you. And they brought me in to read for a prison guard. When Jake's character leaves prison, Toby comes to pick him up. So at least my scene would be with the two of them. And I would do anything for these casting directors. They've been really good to me. And um, But when they said, everything else is for men in the military. And I said, wait a minute. They can't make a film about a modern day conflict and not have women represented. There are mothers, mm -hmm. our sisters, our aunts, our daughters, and they're dying over there, you know? And uh, this was 15 years ago. So it was right in the middle of conflict, right? Yeah. So the casting you know, director and her assistant, they talked about it and they looked at me and they said, you're absolutely right. And I said, and I'm a veteran. So they gave me some sides. I looked at them on the spot. We recorded them. 
and Jim Sheridan, My Left Foot in America in the Name of the Father, phenomenal director, talked to him about it and they all thought, wow, what a great idea. So I got a call back and um, went in, read for Jim and um, he kept saying, don't we have anything else for her? Bigger, bigger, you know, because I had these one-liner military lines uh, or lines from characters that were written for men in the military. And there was a role of a, a colonel, a commanding officer. And I read for that. And he looks at me and he goes, you play in your thirties, don't you? <laughs> and I've always looked young, you know, yeah. yellow is mellow and, you know, Asian <laughs> don't raisin kind of thing, but I'm mixed. And, um, and you don't tell them how old you are at the time because you don't want to confuse them. And I, and I did, I was getting cast in my thirties. And at the time I was a month from turning 50. So I'm not going to complain if he thinks I look like I'm 30. So I didn't hear, I didn't hear. And then I was told that I got cast because he talked to me, spent a lot of time talking to me about my background, my military career. We worked on scenes. It was a lovely audition. He's a phenomenal director um, in the experience that I had with him. And they were so excited. They cast me as the helicopter pilot. They were trying to figure out where they could put me in the film. So mm -hmm. I got the role of the helicopter pilot, which was amazing to me. Um, yeah. And we had, you know, we were on set, had a long day on set. There were all kinds of crazy things that went on behind the scenes. So we had a very, very long day. But uh, it was in the middle of the writer's strike. Uh, at that time, there was a strike. And so they couldn't change lines or do anything. But I, you know, I was doing a lot, some improvisation just in terms of the, they're like, what would you say? We were flying into uh, an area of conflict. Everybody but Toby on the helicopter and my co-pilot didn't know where we were going. It was a blind mission. So it was sort of all my experience. And I was able to show um, the great actor who played my co-pilot, Chad Brummett, um, things about the cockpit you know, how it really worked, how the seatbelts worked and things like, because I had been in this craft before. Yeah. So, um, but it was astounding to me that had I not said anything at that audition, there would not have been a woman representing the military in that film. That's a damn shame. You know, I mean, they always, well, I know, one of the movies that I, I like to watch is Salt, and that has Angelina Jolie in it. Mm -hmm. um, and originally, because I had watched something, an interview, they said that that role was for a man. It was never intended for a woman. And then Angelina went in there whipping ass, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, which know, she does so well which she does yeah you know I, I, she she's a bad one I like her and it's just they they don't some people don't think about that you know it's always guys 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 no I'm sorry there were women there too you know just like Pearl Harbor there were nurses there were still women soldiers there but the only soldiers I've seen in that movie Pearl Harbor 
was, you know, the women were there, but where were the women soldiers is my right. question. Yeah. You know, yeah. You know, there, this is something that's an issue in our industry in the culture and our society, whether you're yeah. talking about women, whether you're talking about women with gray hair, when I let my hair grow out natural, I started going gray in my twenties, actually at two, I had a skunk spot that was all black hair when I was born. My mom said I had a birthmark, but by the time I was two, it had turned all white. And I started to go gray in my 20s. Um, and by the time I was 26, 27, I had to dye my hair um, just to you know, keep it darker. I was getting so gray. And I decided to let it grow out um, in my early 40s. I was very salt and pepper. My agents thought, you're going to get a ton of work. And I didn't because in casting, their feeling was if I had hair that color, I needed to look wrinkled. I needed to look, you know, for women, I'm like, why? Men can be gray yeah. and very young looking, um, but women can't. And when I let my hair go gray, um, I would say 70% to 80% of my auditions dried up. And in fact, I'm going to get a brown wig. I have wigs that I can use, but I'm going to take headshots in that and set it up where there's like a separate, <laughs> yeah. you know, a separate page for me with dark hair so that people realize, oh, with a wig on, she looks like this. Yeah. But it's interesting that uh, like IMDb and SAG-AFTRA was fighting for us in the Screen Actors Guild, American Federation of Television Radio Artists, for people who are listening that don't know who our union is that represents actors and broadcasters, stunt performers, background, puppeteers. Um, I mean, they're an amazing union. And um, I just derailed myself. I started talking about, <laughs> I forgot what I was, where I was going with this. We were talking about. Wigs. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so with IMDB, they started this thing where they posted our age, which is nobody's business. And I had actually written a letter to them saying, don't want my age posted. That has nothing to do with my ability to perform. You know, my ethnicity, my age, any of that. It should be what I can play. And as soon as that happens, and tech, with technology and online casting and resources, instead of you walking in the room and they get, wow, she has this energy, this vibe, her hair color doesn't matter. Her body size doesn't matter. How mm -hmm. tall, how short, it's what she brings. Now they pre-factor everything. They check, we want this age group. We want this ethnicity. We want this hair color. We want, you don't get to check multiple boxes. You don't get to check, well, I have wigs and I can wear wigs. And if you put in there that you have a 20-year age span, I mean, I have played characters within one year that were 25 to 30 years apart in age. Yep. You yep. know, I, I know, know how to 
makeup, carry myself, wigs, whatever it is. So it's gotten harder for people of color, women, seniors on some level. And yet the union and um, people within the industry and in society are fighting really hard to make sure that our storytelling is representative of the entire American scene, not stereotypes, not um, narrow vision of what it is to be um, of any race or any color. And that still happens. Yeah, I know exactly what you're saying about the, the box because I always see Caucasian or white. And I'm like, okay, so, but I'm also two different types of Indian and Italian. And it doesn't really bother me that the, uh, you know, the Italian's not on there because that's in a lot of people's blood, but the two different types, I, if my hair is darker, I, I look completely Indian. You, you can see. I can see it. Yeah. And what's funny is the two types I am. Apache and Cherokee, they hated each other, you know, and then they ended up, I don't know, breeding, you know, <laughs> but I mean, it's, and here there. you are. <laughs> yeah. And you can never pick like the Caucasian and Indian because they're going to be like, what, what the hell did you just do? Because I can really pull that off. I know I can, yeah. you know, but I just have to put down that I'm a white girl. You know, <laughs> well, you know, historically, I've played so many different characters. I mean, you had asked me for some photos, and I thought it would be fun to send you pictures from different parts of my career. And back in the day, you know, I, I had tons of hair, and I used to get a perm. Uh, my dad, who's a Russian Jew, was blonde and curly. Um, but my mom is Chinese Mongolian, born and raised in Shanghai. My dad's family all came through Ellis Island. And I, you know, I get all these references depending on my hair, my makeup, who I look like, what I can look like. But I'll move through certain parts of town here, and people always speak to me in Spanish. When I I've done 13 projects in New Mexico. Everybody that I met that was indigenous asked me what tribe I was from. You know, I just have that really very multi-ethnic yeah. sort of look. And in an ideal world, all of us should be able to play anything, right? But unfortunately, because of all the misrepresentation and the mischaracterization and the lack of equity in terms of casting and opportunities available to the BIPOC community, the LGBTQ plus community, to women, to seniors. We have a long way to go in making sure that our um, fellow actors, we, you know, that have been underrepresented and marginalized and mischaracterized have the same opportunities. So I'm willing not to play certain roles, indigenous roles in favor of, they better exhaust every possible person they can who's indigenous to play that role. Yeah. 
artists have the right to cast whoever they want. Producers, directors, actors, a lot of us are hyphenists, hyphenates. They have the right to work with whoever they want to work with. We can't tell an artist, you can't create with this person. What we're really trying to do, and this is the same thing I haven't mentioned except early, um, the um, performers with disabilities. I serve on that national committee. You know, what we need is fair representation of all people in all types of roles. Why are we not seeing more amputees or people who use wheelchairs or people with physical, emotional, or mental abilities, different abilities, um, disabilities, representing anyone within our society. It, it's the one group that we can all become a member of in an instant, yeah. right? And it's a large percentage of our population, and yet we have very little representation on screen unless that's what the story is about, right? Yep. So it's the same thing for people of color. You know, why can somebody not be cast in certain roles? Um, and same thing with gender identity. And until we get to a place where everybody has equal opportunity, those of us who are mindful and aware are going to make some choices to support that happening, where we can all be treated with dignity, all have the same opportunities, then it doesn't matter. I mean, one of the greatest performances I ever saw, um, an actor named um, Matthew Zambrano, he's brilliant. And the Denver Center for the Performing Arts used to have a graduate program there um, for a few years, they did that. And as I believe it was his senior year, and I used to try to go down and support the program as much as possible, I saw Matthew perform in a play where he was cast as the mom. It wasn't a gender choice. It wasn't that he was playing somebody who was transgendered. He literally was cast as the mom. Um, but Within 30 seconds, I totally bought this young man as this mom. And he wasn't trying to be effeminate. He was just him. And the way he understood the character, it totally worked. Wow. I had been cast once as an older Jewish man. I was the only actor within this, uh, this group, and they were doing a, a staged reading of a new work. And I'm, you know, my father's family is Jewish. I'm of Russian heritage. And so they said, Sheila, you play, you know, the older man. And I did. And people had that same experience. It's like, wow, once we got over that, it didn't matter. And I'm not saying that we should, you know, do bizarre casting for the sake of it. But I think we don't give people enough credit that, when the work is there, when the passion is there, when the love is there, when the commitment is there, um, our brains are so flexible, right? We can get over what somebody looks like, what they sound like, what they feel like. If, if they're living it 
and they bring those characteristics to life because what are we doing? We're just bringing our humanity to the screen. That's what we want to bring to our everyday lives. You know, that's an actor takes make-believe circumstances and makes them real. And we identify the more human it is. It's just we've been given a very narrow lane for what human looks like. And we need to blow that out of the water mm -hmm. so that everybody can be represented. And then it doesn't matter who plays what, because we all have equal opportunity. And then it's like, let the best artists get the job. But we're not there yet. We're yeah. just... And and I didn't I re I remembered um, when I brought up IMDb what SAG After was so brilliant about and that's when I derailed myself, um, and there was an actress who was pursuing similarly um, you know a lawsuit about that. Um, SAG After fought with IMDb uh, for a long time, and we finally won. Where. I have the right to go into my pro account and say, no, I don't want my age or my birth date posted. I mean, yeah. I think it also creates a security, you know, breach potentially. People know your full name, IMDB, they know everything about you and where you live. I mean, I personally haven't filled all that out. People know who my agents are, but um, it's really nobody's business. Yeah, IMDb could be a good thing for some things, but it can be very bad on some other things because we've had issues getting the production for Shattered Dreams going because we have one person in particular that is contacting people that they don't even know, not face-to-face -face one time with the person, and causing havoc. I mean, I've had... and I the cops at my house three times i've had my number changed three times over this you know just like the adding stuff onto imdb or rearranging stuff and some people can go in there and do that but it's so frustrating because when i go to put it back on or fix it then it wants to fight with me and i'm like this is not going to happen. You know, it's just, so it's ridiculous. It is. Yeah. You know? I mean, <laughs> you know, talking about tech in our industry, and that's the other reason why I'm a staunch, staunch advocate. Um, you know, you, you wouldn't have our industry at the level you did if it wasn't for our unions, you know, SAG-AFTRA, our contracts pretty much run those sets. But, you know, the protections that we need, our industry from the beginning of time has evolved and changed based on technology. You know, yeah. SAG and AFTER were two separate unions. Screen Actors Guild was film. The American Federation of Television and Radio Artists happened first. Equity for stage started before even that. And it was really about the fair and equitable treatment of performers, reasonable work hours, fair pay, um, breaks, food breaks, cold hot meals versus cold meals, you know, things like that. Um, but 
with technology and how quickly it changes, particularly in modern times, it changes completely the way we do business and mm -hmm. the way um, we create product. Yeah. And without the unions to help us to navigate that, to negotiate on our behalf, I don't know where we would be. I mean, most people don't stop and think about the idea that, you know, when you go to a, um, to a job interview at a bank, at a hospital, at a law firm, at, you know, a fast food joint, a restaurant, you have conversations about whether you're a salaried employee, whether you're an hourly employee, what kind of benefits do you get? Do you get overtime? Do you get health care? Do you get pension? Right? Do you get maternity leave? Do you get vacation pay? As an actor, I could be doing a, a commercial for a food chain one day. Mm -hmm. um, a guest starring role on a TV show for a network, another, an independent film three weeks later, yeah. a studio, big studio picture. I have all these different employers. Where do I get any of that? How do I hold any of those people accountable? And if it, you're not working in a fixed studio situation on a TV show, these sets are moving all the time. So you would hear about abuses in the industry, but by the time that actor is trying to get paid or a claim they were injured on the set, the operation is packed up, rolled up, out of the state. And now they've got to hire an attorney that's going to cost them more money than what they were going to get paid on that shoot just to try to get paid. Yeah. So our unions become, uh, for lack of a better word, for the actor... They're this sort of clearing house for fair pay, for benefits, for pension, for health, for all these things that allow us to organize and negotiate like what we just did, yeah. um, you know, for our most recent contract, which has stunning gains in it um, for our members that have really set a tone and a precedent for ethical and moral treatment of performers moving forward, because as technology continues to advance, that's going to continue to change. So yeah. we have to be protected. We have to be protected. And without an umbrella organization to do that, it's virtually impossible. For So for new people coming into the industry, anybody listening who's new or brand new, doesn't understand what the value of that union is, Imagine yourself as an individual on a set with a big studio, a big network. And, you know, most of the industry is owned by seven entities. <laughs> you know, when we negotiate with the AMPTP, it's about 360, 70 producers that come under that umbrella to negotiate. And so it's really coming up with these fair and equitable practices you know, think about when you go on that job interview at a bank, you're not expected to stay after five o'clock if you're not going to get paid overtime. So why is it when you're on a film set as a non-union actor, they can work you for 18 hours a day for $200 a day and not owe you anything more? Right? Yeah, yeah I mean, that that does get frustrating sometimes. You know, it real well, I mean, to me, 
to me, it, it was frustrating, <laughs> you know, because we've already, we had that conversation about the difference between, you know, FICOR and the Screen Actors Guild, you know, and it was basically you're doing all the work or you're working here, there and everywhere else with FICOR and you can do non-union, union, same, you know, but then in, you know, as SAG-AFTRA, then you're going to get paid. So, yeah, I, I think the only thing I want to say about that is because, you know, FICOR is something that doesn't just apply to SAG-AFTRA, but any sort of union membership, whether you're, you know, steel metal worker, you know, an electrician, a plumber, railroad transportation worker, that, you know, basically is a union busting um, policy. But the problem is, is you have to ask yourself this, who do you want to be when you grow up? Um, if you take that status, you're not a member. You can't put SAG-AFTRA on your resume. You're a fee-paying non-member. And the problem is, is that if a producer knows that they can hire you non-union, why will they ever hire you or treat you the way you deserve to be treated, and we lose our leveraging power to negotiate. Yeah. You lose your ability to negotiate. All the gains that were made in this contract were made because we had a force of 160,000 members um, and other unions both within our industry, whether it's the Writers Guild, and you saw how long they were on strike, the Directors Guild. Um, and when we did our rally, I was a strike captain, and we did a rally here in Denver and had about 150 people there. Well, huge percentage of the group that showed up was based on our union's relationship with the Colorado AFL-CIO, the um, American Federation of Labor and Congress of Industrial Organizations, it's the umbrella union organization that all other unions can be a member of. We had pipe fitters and transportation workers and hotel workers, everybody coming out to support us because they recognize that all of us, these big businesses and big conglomerates are standing on our backs, on our talent, on our labor to make huge amounts of money, huge amounts of money. And they don't want to carve out enough for us to be able to have a fair and decent lifestyle. Yeah. You know? And so if you choose to be a fee-paying non-member, you are leveraging against our ability to have the strength and the power to negotiate on your behalf. And then one day you will find yourself sitting there. It's easy to say, well, I'll do that. Well, the only reason why somebody else can do that is because the 160,000 plus members who don't? You're doing it on our backs. And if we all did that and became a fee-paying non-member, there would be no union. There would be no leverage. 
and people will be won't have sustainable careers. They won't be able to take care of their families. They won't have health care. They won't have a pension. And when you're younger, you might think, yeah, I don't need that. I'm not worried about that now. Well, guess what? You're not worried about that. If the unions go under, you won't have a career because you're going to have to do something else. You're not going to be able to put bread and butter on the table for your family or only bread and butter because you're not going to be able to afford a steak or shrimp or lobster or anything else, right? Um, You have to look at the whole picture. And that's that's why I say, see who you want to be when you grow up. And if you live in a market that's predominantly non-union, but the agents, the actors, the casting directors, the local producers recognize that you build a stronger community where everybody can thrive when you pay them well. I I love this story. I do a lot of panels and workshops here in Colorado. And I have in other areas as well. But so I get to know a lot of the producers locally. And I had a producer come up to me one day and he said, I hate the unions. And I said, why? You know, I didn't just start yelling at him. <laughs> there was a part <laughs> of me that was like, you hate the union. <laughs> I'm like, I, I just asked him simply, I said, why? He goes, because every time we find a good actor, they fight we finally after a year or two they get really good we start using them a lot by their third year they join the union and we can't use them anymore and i said you don't hate the union you hate the fact that you live in a market that doesn't support a s- sustainable industry a s- s- sustainable industry <laughs> That doesn't support a sustainable industry, because if you had a sustainable injury industry where you paid that actor fairly, they wouldn't be leaving you. And then you would have enough money in your budget because, like you said, it took you two years before they were good enough. And now that they're good enough, I'm not going to keep working just to build my chops and my resumes with this sort of, you know, low all kind of thing here, when I've got somebody who's willing to give me pension and health and overtime, pay me what I'm worth. I want a career. I'm not a hobbyist. And most people don't realize how many of us end up being hobbyists And a lot of that is if you're willing to work both sides of the fence, you end up breaking down the fence and then you have no fence and no other side, and then you'll be on the bottom. You have to think about the whole picture. So I tell people, stay non-union as long as you need to. As long as you're building your chops, there's not a lot of work in your market, But nowadays with technology, people are auditioning in Colorado for jobs in Atlanta and New Mexico and L.A. and New York. I mean, I've booked jobs in different markets, you know, sitting Mm. in front of my computer. That's a beautiful thing right there. I I love the fact that a lot of it. I mean, I get they eventually need you in person, but it is great that you can just submit the tapes and whatever else you need to without 
having to drive all the way across the country for a no and then drive all the way back. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's so much better that way. <laughs> it is. And the yeah. other thing is um, some of the huge gains that we got, you know, with COVID, um, everything really changed. Everything became about this world, the Zoom world. But if had that not happened, you and I may not be talking. People weren't, you know, thinking about all the possibilities that could happen because of that. So it was one of the positive things that really came out of that horrid experience that was COVID. But there were other problems that came up with self-tape. You know, when you look at self-taping, look, there are some actors that are brilliant, brilliant actors. They're not technicians. They live alone. They may have a small studio apartment in New York City, and they don't have a whole wall that can be clear, you know, because even the door has their shoe rack hanging on it, you know, and just to try to set up, it could be somebody, um, person who has different abilities, and they're not as mobile, and that's a difficult situation, or you don't have somebody to read with you off camera. And some people, again, just aren't technically acclimated. Why should we not have access to brilliant actors? And I don't want to have to look. I mean, I'm a director. I'm a writer. So I can look at my footage. I've been doing this for so long. It's easier for me to go, yeah, not so good, not so good, not so good. Yeah. We can also get kind of um, tainted to our own skew and not lose I loved when you have an in-person audition and your adrenaline is going and there's something exciting that happens when you know you don't get to stop you don't get to cut you don't get to do a do-over yeah so like with my students all the time I'm going I want to do this take as if you've got one shot you've got yeah. one shot you don't get to word flub and stop you've got to keep going you know you've got to bring that to it because we're losing some of that magic and it's a huge piece in how we audition so one of our recent gains is that actors have the ability to schedule an in-person zoom audition now whether that's for technical reasons they don't have the equipment or can't afford it or their roommate who has all that is on a shoot and took it with them. Mm -hmm. um, they're disabled and aren't able to do that um, in a way that isn't challenging for them and taking hours of their life to do it. And for some people, they're not, they don't have a good eye for watching their own performance. They need a little bit of direction. There's some great actors in the world who, you know, we've seen the interviews and they're like, without direction, I'm not very good at making choices while other people are great at making choices. So with the new contract, people have an option. People have an option to be seen um, at least like this live over Zoom. Yeah. Or they can do a self-tape. Um, they can't be required um, you know, to have to change their hair or costumes or wear wigs or have to do 15, 20 pages, you know, it has to be more like what it was, what they would do with you if you were actually in the room. And so this provides opportunity 
and protections for everybody. You know, we have yeah. performers um, that are blind or on the spectrum of vision, uh, performers that are deaf or hearing impaired. And so you have all kinds of things to take into consideration for the casting process. And that's what SAG-AFTRA does. They talk to people in the BIPOC community, the LGBT plus community, all our members in the specialty groups and women and seniors. And we have what they call W&Ws, wages and working condition meetings prior to a negotiation where you hear from the members what's working, what's not working, what's not being enforced, what's difficult for them. And then our union, our staff, our leadership, our negotiating teams, our lawyers go to bat to make sure that the environment we work in is safe, it's fair, and it's equitable, all the way from the audition process through post. It's amazing. That's the way it should be. <laughs> Seriously. I do think that the 20 page aud auditioning, I think that's kind of, that was shit because I've heard people, you know, that have been on soap operas. Oh, it was 20 something pages, 28 pages. You might as well just sit down and do a damn table read, you know, because you're going to be able to tell if that person can do it a lot easier than having them audition with 20 some odd pages not a reader in sight, it, it would be easier just get them in a table read because you can tell if somebody would be able to pull it off by, you know, their understanding of the abbreviations or the pacing in the beats, you know, versus here you go, tape yourself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they weren't supposed to do this, but they were asking you to be memorized. And then you'd have, you know, yeah. An eight hour turnaround, you get the audition notice on a Tuesday morning, it's got to be done on Wednesday and you work or you're a parent with kids and you've got to do dinner and homework and you're trying mm -hmm. to get this done at one o'clock in the morning and you've got to get up at six o'clock to go to work. So we've built in protections for turnaround time that they can't force you to be memorized. And I have to say, if there are any directors or producers out there, why the heck would you do that to an actor? Because if all they're thinking about, am I getting your script right? You're not seeing necessarily every beautiful little nuance they can bring when all they're, all they're focusing on is performance. If I know for the audition, I don't have time to memorize. Yep. And I'm a good memorizer. I always had sort of a you know photographic memory. Other actors used to tease me. When I played Martha and Virginia Woolf, it was a 130 page play. My character's on 90 plus pages. I was word perfect on the script and I knew yeah. most everybody else's lines. It's just the way my brain used to work. <laughs> so, it's, but it's, for people who don't. Yeah. And when you have such a quick turnaround, directors, casting directors, producers are doing themselves a disfavor. Even if you have a um oh the word just went out of my head um <laughs> uh whatchamacallit where the words scroll oh a teleprompter a teleprompter thank you i couldn't mm -hmm. think of the word and i've worked them for years even if you have a teleprompter if it's all about reading it rather than being a really good person on cold copy you look down you grab that line you're so familiar with it 
because you're not stressed about memorizing it, then they're going to see more of what you can bring. They're going to see more of what makes you unique in your own personality and character. And I think they, they've done themselves a disservice that it has to be memorized. That's that's ridiculous. Well, one thing I've done with the Shattered Dream script, the movie that we're working on, um, I made sure the actors that I hand, you know, chose got those scripts, the whole script. You know, I sent them the whole script. Read the whole script and then keep going over your role and then send me a tape. So I can see if you're right for that role or right in a different role in the movie. And because, I mean, I've already done a little bit of this movie so far on my own. I shot the little teaser trailer. I put together a production crew. I went out. I was the director for that. And producing, I've been doing that the whole time. So I just feel like, you know, people are better if they're more prepared. I've chose you for a reason. Here's the script. Get familiar with it. When you get a chance, send me a tape because we're not filming yet. But I do want to make sure that I put you in the right, the right place in my head, you know, because if not, I'm going to move you to a different role and put somebody else in that role. And mm -hmm. I know a lot of people probably there's a method to my madness <laughs> because some people are like, you're crazy. Hey, I just want to do what's going to be best for the movie. Yeah. And that Absolutely. right there is going to be best for the movie. You know, I just had I just had a really fun audition that that has resulted in my being cast in a in a project in New Mexico um, that looks like it's getting some real legs. But when when I saw when they sent me the sides for the audition, it was a monologue. Now, I didn't know at the time that the monologue was not part of the script. And they brilliantly wrote a monologue that showed different aspects of this character yep. that you actually wouldn't necessarily see or glean from the dialogue that was in the actual script. And they asked for it. And it was nice to get some direction where the director said to me, I want to see it two different ways. I want to see it, you know, where this is a woman who's the boss and, um, She's hard on her uh, employee, but the employee's screwing up, but she takes no prisoners, basically. And another one where she's beside herself and whatever. And I got the feeling it, you know, it had comedic notes to it. And I really got to play, you know, because yeah. it's nice if you give us, I mean, I love when somebody says, bring what you have, but at least give me a sense of, um, you know, are we sitting over here in the red zone or the blue zone? Is it comedy or is it drama? And let me do whatever I want with that. Mm -hmm. But when you give them everything, you know, as an acting coach, a lot of actors go when there's too much for them to choose from. Most of them haven't been trained in a way where they can look at material and just make fabulous choices mm -hmm. and bring themselves to it. Um, unfortunately, most aren't trained that way. It's a beautiful thing when you are, when somebody instills, you know, a belief that you have in yourself that you can interpret that for yourself and go, but not all great actors are great at interpreting 
material either. They need help to understand the material and then they can fly. So I think it's helpful if any directors or casting directors are listening, give us something, give us a nugget, you know, a little bit of something, because then you're most likely to get a lot of variety around that nugget than if you do nothing and the actor is throwing darts everywhere. You know, then you're going to have more choices across a greater variety of people because not everybody thinks or processes the same way. That's, that's probably what I miss the most about being in the room or for the people that I coach who aren't in the room um, is those that struggle with some of those things when they don't get a nugget and they have to self tape and then they got to try to figure out what this is about and which choice should they send in you know it makes it hard makes it hard but on this one getting to go crazy either (laughs) way on a monologue and and then they liked the work and you know we're moving forward so that was a blast it is playing around is fun but (laughs) because i mean you get you get a better sense of you know what are you going to do because if everybody's doing the same thing it's robotic and it's boring and who the hell wants to watch that you know you've got to have people doing different stuff always because that is what carries your your film your tv show whatever it doesn't matter if you don't keep it interesting if not it's going to be all it's the same shit oh i know you know that's (laughs) gonna be it's the same shit when I lived in, I lived in LA a couple of different times and I'll never forget pilot seasons because they bring, bring me in and they go, oh, you're going to be terrific. You've got a great look. And this is something brand new. And then the next words out of their mouth was, it's a cross between Allie McBeal and that. Okay. It's brand new, but it's a cross between, <laughs> you know, it's their way of trying to do a remake of something that's really successful. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think freshness comes in our industry and life. And it doesn't matter what kind of an artist you are, you know, um, in everything that you do. I mean, we started our conversation today about um, veterans and being in the military. And even Mm -hmm. if you draw the comparison between military life and our industry, there's a lot of things that are really very, very similar. And one of those things is in the military, there's a lot of structure and you're given that structure and you're trained with that structure. So you understand the chain of command. Well, on a set, there's a chain of command. And while I may disagree with a director and I may have, if I do it respectably, be able to say, I'm confused by that direction Or can you help me to understand this? Or I'm going to do, um, here's a thought I have, and you have that relationship. But ultimately, if the director says, I just don't see it that way, I'd love for you to do that. That's my job. Yeah. Because their job is to make sure that this vision plays through for the whole film. And I may not be seeing something that they see, but that's my job. Okay. Um, unless they're challenging me on an ethical or moral issue that I'm not comfortable with, then that's different, right? And so 
But the other thing is, is like you were talking earlier about soldiers and, and who we are in the military, while we have to understand our chain of command. If you're on time, you're late. We show up on time. We're prepared. We do our homework. We get to where we need to go. But once you're in that environment, you don't know what's going to happen. And so when you're in those environments, you have to be fast on your feet. That's improv, people. You know, those leadership skills of how to communicate with people. There's a lot of really shy people that are brilliant and talented performers because putting on that characters like wearing a mask and they're free to be other than who they might be in their real life. And in the military, you put on that uniform and I know I have a responsibility. I never saw war but I was trained, um, you know, to be in those situations. Um, The training that I had um, at basic training, at tech school, at the prep school, at the Air Force Academy, you know, where we were in simulated situations, you know, you, you have to think on your feet. And it's, it's, it's a war zone. (laughs) Life today is a war zone. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> and so the creative aspect flows both ways. Artists who end up in the military and military veterans uh, who end up in our industry, you know, who understand that, you know, the professionalism, professionalism that's needed, um, the leadership qualities that they gain, uh, the respect that they have for chain of command, those kinds of things are all really um, inherent in most any kind of operation, whether it's military, civilian, corporate, anything. Yeah. You know, there, there's a lot. In, and the most important thing is we have to come together to do it. Yep, I agree. Well, on that note, we are going to at least close out the show. We can stay on. <laughs> but we will tell everybody goodbye and thank you so much for coming on i love having females come on the show especially female veterans and you are my second veteran female veteran it's always usually like the guy i'm like where the hell are all the women and you know Yeah, well, I I so appreciate you for what you're doing. I want to give a shout out to Carl, Carla Christina Contreras Carla. for recommending <laughs> me to you and in our initial, you know, interview to see if I'd be a good fit for you. It's an honor for me. Um, obviously, I can't represent anybody other than myself. I don't speak for anybody other than myself. Yeah. But hopefully through shared experience and understanding, we start to look to each other, regardless of our walk in life, with respect, treat people with dignity, recognize how much better we off when we work as a collective and we work together to lift each other up in an ideal world, we wouldn't need a military state. Right. That's true. But we don't live in that world. You know, I'd rather live in a world where that didn't need to exist, but it does. And the best that we can do is be our best selves always lift each other up so that hopefully we get to a point in somebody's lifetime where it's unnecessary. That's right. 
All right, you guys, we will see you later. Bye. It's time to strap our boots on. This is a perfect day to die. Wipe the blood out of our eyes. In this life, there's no surrender, and there's nothing left for us to do. Find the strength to see this through.
Taking all the money that it went To spend it all on bailing out a friend Good husband and a new dad Gives a son all the things he never had Just when he could call his house home Another fallen Fair and life is rough It's gonna be a good time catching up